Good morning, Great Oaks. It is good to be back with you again. If you have been seeing that mystery face on the bumper video and hoping for someone famous, I'm sorry. I am mostly famous to two little boys, Luke and Daniel, who I have the privilege of raising along with my husband, Jeff. Uh, Luke is two and Daniel is seven months. And it has been a joy to be here to catch up with the Rotans. I served on church staff with Jason uh, when I was doing youth ministry. And um, it's just so much fun to catch up with them, get beat at some Mexican train, and uh, get to check out some different things in Peoria. It's fun to see how God is at work in Germantown Hills. I catch up with Jason throughout the year and um, just get a front row seat to hear about how God is at work in this community in and through you as you connect people to Jesus. And that is such a gift. Um, All of you moms of little ones, maybe you grandparents who hang out with grandkids a lot, I see you. You are doing hard, incredible work. Kids Town volunteers, thank you so much for serving. It matters. It really matters. Um, That today we are in week four of the summer series, The Games We Play. And if you have missed any of the series so far, I encourage you to go back and listen. I have personally been challenged and convicted and encouraged by the messages from Paul and Tara and Chase. And so far, the games we've covered have included Minecraft, Monopoly and Risk. And today we're talking about the game Sorry. Cue the Aid. Now even if it has been a while, like it has for me, you probably remember the gist of the game. You are each racing to get your pawns from start to home base, the fastest. And when you land at, on the same space as someone else, you look at them and say, in your most sarcastic voice, Sorry. And they send their pawn back to start to try to make it home again. In other words, sorry, not sorry, right? As I've been remembering this game, I have found it kind of disturbing that we teach this game to kids as young as like four years old. Like we teach them to fake apologize when you play the game sorry. Like say sorry to your friend, but you don't actually mean it. And we've all seen this scenario, right? A two-year-old pushes another two-year-old on the playground, and the parent or babysitter will intervene and tell them what? Say you're sorry. Now, have I done this with my two-year-old on the playground? Absolutely. Do I believe that I'm teaching an important life skill of apologizing? You bet. Is my two-year-old actually sorry that he pushed the other kid so that he could get to the slide? questionable at best, isn't it? We say that we are sorry multiple times a week, if not in a day. We bump into someone's cart in the grocery store. We're late for a meeting. I'm sorry. We forget to run the dishwasher. We can't follow through on something that we told our kids. I'm sorry. We said something that hurt our spouse. We have to cancel our plans with our friend. We texted before we filtered our thoughts. I'm sorry. And these are seemingly small things that we do every day that do warrant a sincere apology. They're also indicators of who we are as humans. We fail, we mess up, we need to ask for forgiveness. Chase talked about the idea last week that failure is part of our story. And it's so true, isn't it? Failure is part of our stories. 
and it has been since the very beginning. I was talking to a friend last week on the phone, and we were talking about the story of Adam and Eve and how they ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. God had given them one instruction, and they messed up. And we were wondering, would the outcome have been different if instead of hiding from God, they went to him and just said, I'm sorry. These two words, two of the smallest but most powerful words in the English language, can restore relationships and mend brokenness. But what happens when someone has come to us and said, I'm sorry, over and over for the same thing? Or maybe they haven't even apologized or owned up to the ways that they've hurt us, but we have a list a mile long of all the things that we want an apology for. We get tired, don't we? We get impatient. We get fed up, and we wonder, how many times? Where's the limit? How many times do I have to forgive someone who's wronged me? This person in my life has broken promise after promise. Or so-and-so continually fails to communicate with me. Maybe there is a relationship in your life right now where you know you have been holding on to unforgiveness. I know as I stand here today that that is true for me. What if we could ask Jesus the question, how many times should I forgive someone who has hurt me? Well, in our passage today, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, asked that exact question. In Matthew 18, 21, Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, even if you don't know what Jesus' answer is yet, you're probably imagining that he's going to respond with more than seven. But in asking this question, Peter is actually being generous. He is catching on to the idea that when Jesus teaches, both through his words and his actions, about forgiveness, that it is more than what they have learned. In, Jesus's, in Jewish teaching up to this point, the common understanding was that three times was enough to show a forgiving spirit. That was what they've been taught, three times. The fourth time someone wrongs you, it shows that they're not repentant. They're not truly sorry for what they have done. And so forgiveness was no longer required. So by Peter asking if they should forgive seven times, he is already going above and beyond the accepted teaching of the day. And Jesus responds by saying this, not seven times, but 77 times. Will you pray with me as we seek to understand God's word today? God, saying I'm sorry is hard. And you ask us to forgive 77 times. I pray that as we open your word today that you would show us what that means, that you would reveal to us um, more about our hearts and how you desire to change them. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. 
We're going to be in Matthew 18 this morning, and Jesus knows that a story is going to help explain his point to Peter. And so he jumps into what is called a parable. It's simply a story that illustrates a life truth. And he asks Peter to think about forgiveness like this. He says, there is a king who is settling accounts with his servants. One of his servants owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Some translations say 10,000 talents. Well, how much is a talent? A lot. There is some disagreement among scholars on the exact like dollar amount that we would translate this into in our economy, but everyone agrees that it is just an enormous amount, like billions of dollars. Some say two and a half billion, some even go above and beyond that. But we know that Jesus is using a crazy large amount to illustrate his point. And because the servant owes the king so much money, the king says that he will be sold along with his wife and children to repay the debt. Now to put this into perspective further, the top price that was paid for a slave was usually one talent. So the king is not even going to come close to recouping his his loss of 10,000 talents by doing this. And the servant falls to his knees, begging the king for patience. He says, I will repay you. Just give me some time. But it is obvious that the man doesn't just need time. He owes billions of dollars. He needs a miracle. He has dug himself into a deep, deep hole. And the miracle is in the mercy of the king. The king meets him in his begging with forgiveness, mercy, and grace. The king took pity on him, released him, and canceled the debt. Some translations say he was moved with compassion. He saw the man on his knees with no way out, and he completely forgave every penny of the billions of dollars that he owed. And then the servant, overjoyed with gratitude, went about his life, generously giving all that he could to help others. Except he didn't. That's not how part two of the story goes. Instead, the servant leaves and he finds another servant who owes him a hundred silver coins. Which is the equivalent of about $4,000 today. And he grabs him, physically demanding that he repay the debt. The servant had the exact same response as the first servant did in front of the king. He says, be patient with me. I will repay it. However, the servant responds a lot differently than the king. He had this servant who owed him $4,000 thrown into prison where there would be no hope of repaying the debt. Other people saw what happened. They knew the enormous debt that the king had released the servant from. And they went back to the king to tell him what happened. The king brings the servant back in and he looks at him and he asks him this question. He says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? The king sent the servant who had once been free to jail until he could pay back the debt. An impossibility. 
In Matthew 18, 35, Jesus ends this interaction with Peter by saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. (sighs) Wow. There is an incredible weight to what Jesus is trying to tell Peter in this story about a king, a servant, and a whole bunch of money. Remember Peter's original question, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? And Jesus' response, not seven times, but 77 times. You read this and you see, how often are we supposed to give forgive? Over and over and over. Billions and billions of dollars of forgiveness. Jesus is telling this story to illustrate the enormous forgiveness that we have received from the Lord. The king has poured out abundant, incomprehensible mercy, and the servant responds by demanding payment from the other servant. So what happened? When I hear this story, it is so easy to judge the servant, to think, how in the world could you be forgiven by the king and then turn around and choke your friend who owes you $4,000. And then the Lord quickly reminds me how often I do the same thing. I am so often the ungrateful servant in the story. I'm on my knees asking God for forgiveness, which he longs to give, always looking at me with compassion, just like the king looked at the servant. And then I hold on to a grudge, a debt. I hold on to hard feelings and anger. And I refuse to offer the same compassion and grace to my friend, my coworker, my family member, my spouse, my child, to anyone who has wronged me or wronged someone that I love. See, I don't let my experience of God's mercy impact how I treat others. There's a disconnect between receiving mercy and giving mercy. Remember the question the king asked? As I've spent time in this story, this question has played over and over in my head. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? What is mercy? What do you think of when you hear that word? Maybe you think of the mercy rule in sports, where if another team is up by a whole bunch of points, then they'll end the game early to spare that team further humiliation. In baseball, it's also known as the 10-run rule. Maybe you're in healthcare, and you think of a healthcare system called Mercy Hospital or something like that. Maybe you grew up in the 90s like me, or you just really enjoyed reruns of the show Full House, and all you picture is Uncle Jesse saying, have mercy. And before I got married, my last name was Percy, which conveniently rhymes with mercy. And so at camp, I earned the nickname No Mercy Percy when I would play basketball. Maybe some of you have played like knockout or lightning, and you have to make a free throw before the person in front of you. I can only make one shot in basketball, but it's a free throw. So No Mercy Percy. (laughs) The games we play don't often allow for mercy, do they? In fact, it seems like it defeats the purpose of playing the game. When you play the game, sorry, 
You will not play this game, land on someone's spot to send them back home and say, oh, I think I'll have mercy on you and let you stay where you are. There's no mercy rule in sorry. In contrast to the games that we play on the court or a board game or in real life in our relationships, Jesus always extends mercy. As I was preparing for this message, Jason asked me if I read the book Forgive by Tim Keller. And I hadn't, so I ordered a copy. And if you are looking for a really solid read on forgiveness, I would highly recommend this book. It's really shaped the way that I think about forgiveness. He writes about how the Old Testament Hebrew word for obtaining mercy actually comes from the word for womb. The word comes to have its meaning from the feelings of a parent toward their newborn infants. In November, I gave birth to our second son, Daniel, and when I look at him, I have an immense sense of compassion and love and forgiveness, even when he wakes me up in the middle of the night. But he has done nothing to earn that, so to speak. And even saying it like that, like even saying like, oh, I wouldn't forgive him for waking me up in the night, that sounds ridiculous. And this is our true identity, right? We are God's children. The biblical concept of mercy means not giving a person what they deserve. Not giving a person what they deserve. The servant who owed the enormous debt deserved to be put in prison. But the king initially showed mercy and did not give him what he deserved. In the New Testament, we read story after story of how Jesus not only taught about mercy, but he poured it out again and again. There are four stories in the book of Matthew alone where Jesus encounters people who are crying out for mercy. Blind men call out, have mercy on us, son of David, and they receive sight. A woman who has a demon-possessed daughter cries out on behalf of her child, have mercy on me. A man's son is suffering from seizures, and he calls to Jesus, have mercy on my son. And towards the end of Matthew, there are two blind men who are sitting by the road, and they hear Jesus going by. The crowd tells them to quiet down, and they yell even louder, have mercy on us, Lord. And every single time, Jesus heals them. They experience the mercy of the Lord. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the greatest display of mercy. He died the death that we deserved. He paid our debt. And when we recognize that we are in need of God's healing and we receive God's mercy, we cannot help but give it to others. Just as the people Jesus healed couldn't help but tell their neighborhoods and communities about the healing that they had experienced. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. And when we experience God's mercy, we cannot help but extend it to others. At the end of the day, this is what is true about forgiveness. This is what the unmerciful servant missed that day when he found the other servant who owed him $4,000. Jesus doesn't want us to miss it. Who do you need 
to forgive. Maybe a list of names comes quickly or there's one name that really sticks out to you. Maybe even this morning getting ready for church, something happened at home or in the car on the way here, and you need to offer someone forgiveness today. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul sums up Jesus' message so clearly. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And forgiving each other involves both asking for forgiveness by saying, I'm sorry, and forgiving someone when they apologize to you. This sounds so simple, so why is it so hard? There's a game that I used to play a lot growing up that is called Parcheesi, and it's actually the game that Sorry is based on. Sorry is like a simplified version of Parcheesi for younger kids to play. And in my opinion, one of the best parts of the game that is missing in Sari is the opportunity to form a blockade. You can get two of your pieces lined up and keep your opponents from getting past you. You can hold them back for a long time, which is really fun when you're the person who made the blockade and really not fun when it's your brother who made it and you can't get past him. So why do we, as the people of God, so often fail at forgiveness? Why is it so hard to extend forgiveness and mercy when someone says to us, I'm sorry? And why don't we say, I'm sorry, more sincerely, more often? I want to briefly touch on three things that hold us back from extending mercy to others. The first is that We think forgiveness is a feeling. If I am motivated by feelings to forgive you, then I will. But what if I don't feel like it? Ever. What happens to forgiveness? I'm going to suggest that it never does. Think about the servant in the story. It is clear that he was angry and upset with the man who owed him the money. How might this story have been different if he chose forgiveness without feeling it. Forgiveness is not something that we do out of our own strength. We can't just try to feel forgiveness towards a person who hurt us. I think what is, what is true is also that I am just as much a sinner as the person who hurt me. I am just as capable of harming others, and God has chosen to forgive me for anything I've ever done. And he calls us to make that same choice. And when Jesus went to the cross to forgive our sins, he didn't do it out of a feeling or because selfishly he wanted to feel better, which is also something we hear about forgiveness. So if you just forgive someone, then you'll feel better. No, this was part of God's plan to bring us back into right relationship with himself. Maybe today you are stuck in unforgiveness because you don't feel like it. I have a friend who I have held on to unforgiveness for years because I haven't felt like it. We all get stuck in this narrative. I challenge you to think about what it would mean to extend mercy even when you don't feel like it. Another reason we get stuck in unforgiveness is this. Forgiveness means that I have to trust you again. 
This is not true. Trust has to be re-earned after we have been wronged or hurt by someone. And when we forgive them, it means that we are seeking reconciliation, that we want to put that relationship back in the right place, but it doesn't mean that we immediately trust them again. And this is a big one for me. I have often struggled to forgive because I thought it meant that things had to go back to the way they were before trust was broken. And depending on the relationship and the situation, trust might be restored quickly or it may never be restored. But that does not mean that there can't be forgiveness. If you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, God forgave them and he did not allow them to live in the garden again. God is both merciful and just, which is a whole message for another time. And the third one, third way we get stuck in unforgiveness is that we try to forgive without God. If you've ever had the thought, I could never forgive myself for whatever comes to mind. One, you are not alone. And two, you will get stuck in unforgiveness. Those of us who would say, yes, I have experienced God's mercy, we can get stuck because we are not living in our identity as God's forgiven children because we don't think that we are worthy of forgiveness. One of my favorite authors, James Ryan Smith, writes, we can only forgive when we know we have been forgiven. When we are certain that we live in the strong and safe kingdom of God. Today, I want to ask you, have you received God's forgiveness? Or do you find yourself stuck in a place of feeling unworthy? As we close in a time of worship today, I'm going to ask that you pray about those who you need to forgive. Forgiveness is a process. It is a process of prayer. It is hard. We get stuck. Maybe one of those things we talked about this morning, maybe the the ways we get stuck in unforgiveness, maybe that resonated with you today. Maybe there's another one. Maybe there is pride or anger. Or maybe like Adam and Eve, you find yourself hiding in shame. Maybe there are other reasons you get stuck. What is keeping you from forgiving that person or people? We have prayer people here this morning who would love to pray with you about whatever you're going through today. I have no doubt that this story of the unmerciful servant would shape how Peter understood forgiveness and mercy for the rest of his life. Imagine standing in front of Jesus and asking him, Lord, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus saying to you, every single time. Because that is how many times I have forgiven you. He says, you are never unworthy of my forgiveness. And Peter would continue to follow Jesus, seeing him extend mercy and forgiveness to person after person, 
And later, Peter writes a letter to the Gentile believers who are suffering persecution. And he encourages them with these words that we read in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And as we close, let these be an encouragement to you today. A forgiven people, sinners saved by sheer grace. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father God, we are so grateful. So grateful we cannot describe for the great mercy that you have offered. I pray today for anyone who is feeling unworthy of your forgiveness, that they would be reminded that they are your son or your daughter and you love them. And you want to forgive them for anything that they're holding on to. God, I pray that as we receive your forgiveness and your mercy and grace, that we would be a people who extend that same love to others, that it would pour out of us, that we would not hold on any longer to past grudges or unforgiveness, but that you would come and break those things, those places where we are stuck and that you would free us to forgive others just as you have forgiven us. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.